Since the season of gift giving, what could be better than taking care of someone with a product from Steel? S-T-I-H-L, steeldealers.com. You'll find your local dealer. There's more than 10,000 around the country. But you want to find out what they have. I mean, I tell you every week about all of their wonderful products, and I tell you that I have a garage full of them. I use the battery-powered stuff, but go to SteelUSA.com, man. It's a toy store. S-T-I-H-L-U-S-A.com. They have unbelievable stuff. They got farm and ranch saws, professional saws, electric saws, in-tree saws, rescue saws, saw chains, guide bars, filing tools, everything you can need. How about trimmers, brush cutters, blowers, shredder vacs, edgers, uh, pressure washers, sprayers, hedge trimmers. I'm telling you, it is a backyard bonanza. It is a toy store for anyone that likes to get the job done themselves. Don't miss out. It, it'll make great holiday gift. Buy one for yourself. Give your own Self a, a nice gift. Steeldealers.com. S-T-I-H-L. Steelusa.com. S-T-I-H-L. USA.com. You'll be glad you checked out all of their products. You'll be buying a bunch, trust me. As we speak, I am having my third, I know that's a lot, my third cup of Aspen Gold today from Boyer's Coffee kind of in-house day, working on the podcast, doing some other things, and I, I keep you know brewing up another uh, cup of coffee. You can do the same. You can have it delivered right to your house, as I do. Go to boyerscoffee.com. Check out all of their wonderful different flavors, their wonderful products, and then a couple of clicks later, it'll be delivered to your house within a couple of days. Tremendous. If you're at the store, you can find all of their products at your favorite grocery store as well. Uh, because it is the holiday season, Boyer's Coffee makes for a great gift for uh, family members, for friends, something else to put under the tree, uh, and they'll put a bow on it for you. They'll make it really easy. Go to boyerscoffee.com, boyerscoffee.com. This week on the Drew Goodman Podcast, CSU basketball head coach, Nico Medved. When I got into high school, it became very clear to me right away that I, I wanted to coach. I, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And, and I thought for me, if I could ever just be the head high school coach in, in my local community, wherever I was, uh, that would be the greatest job in the, in the world. Nico tells us about his approach to winning and is going to break down everything you need to know about this year's Rams. Also, the Rockies lose John Gray and we're not happy about it. Drew breaks it down. Subscribe to the Drew Goodman Podcast wherever you find podcasts and tell a friend. This is the Drew Goodman Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome in. I hope everybody enjoyed their Thanksgiving. It was uh, a fun one here. I had my boys uh, back in town, which was great. Got a lot of football in, which is a, a requisite when you're uh, talking about uh, Thanksgiving. Got to toss the rock around. That was a lot of fun. Great college football, man. So many great games over the weekend. The Iron Bowl was great. I mean, it didn't start out great. It was kind of strange to see Alabama scoreless through, what, three quarters at Auburn. And it looked like Auburn was, was going to win the Iron Bowl. And, and Alabama ends up winning it in multiple uh, overtimes. That was great theater. None better, though, than Jim Harbaugh and Michigan finally beating Ohio State. 
and they earned it, man. They kicked their ass up front. They rushed for almost 300 yards in that game. I think the final total was 297. They won the football game up front. There was no fluke about it. I know Ohio State's good. You know Ohio State's good. But Michigan finally earned it. And um, and you know what? I'm not a Michigan guy. I pull typically for Ohio State. Uh, Tony Alford, you know, is an old friend and and has been uh, such a key member of that staff for uh, a number of years. And my son went to school down the road from Ohio State. So I, I pull for the Buckeyes. Uh, but you know what? I was happy for Jim Harbaugh. I, I was happy for the maize and blue. It was watching from afar, you know, great theater. Uh, what a great environment. I mean, the energy flowed through the television. I mean, you you could feel the energy and the adrenaline in that stadium, in the big house. And then to see all the fans rush the field afterward felt good for uh, for Michigan. And it's why I, I kind of wrote a note down that night. It's why we love sports. I think I put it out on Twitter. That's why we love sports. It was awesome. And uh, again, I, I, I typically I root for the Buckeyes typically. But, you know, hats off to Michigan. They finally uh, under Jim Harbaugh able to win. And that makes for a better rivalry. I know that'll always be one of the great rivalries in college sports, really at the top of the food chain. But for there to be a rivalry, both teams have to win, right? You can't have one team winning 37 in a row and still call it a great rivalry. Uh, So wait till next year, right? If you're Ohio State, it just uh, ratchets things up that much more. Hey, quick reminder, as always, to join Patrick Lyons and uh, and the DNVR crew uh, on really every sport. Uh, But uh, in particular, with uh, Patrick and the uh, Rockies coverage, five days a week, I jump on with him uh, once a week. In fact, we taped uh, earlier today, and uh, there's a lot of going on in baseball, and we're going to get to that uh, right now. I'll start with uh, the John Gray situation. Disappointing. John Gray signs with Texas, four years, $56 million. And from a Rockies perspective, disappointing, as I said. There's no other way uh, to describe that. Uh, the Rockies had a long relationship with John Gray. They drafted him third overall out of the University of Oklahoma. Uh, John is a kid that has really matured. I really like John. He's been on this podcast you know, I, I've known him since he arrived in the big leagues. He's a he's a really good young man. And, you know, I think not only he's gotten better as a pitcher, but he's grown emotionally. Uh, his mental toughness uh, has increased as he's navigated uh, the big leagues. And he has, at times, thrived in the most difficult environment to pitch in in the history of baseball. Now, from the Rockies' standpoint, they felt like they wanted to re-sign John. They're on record as saying that. They felt like they could get it done. John was on record as saying, I want to stay. And this is where some miscalculations obviously took place. Uh, the Rockies reportedly made him you know, a pretty solid offer, and he turned that down. Now, there's a couple of ways to look at this. You can go back to July, and you've hopefully have a feel for what you're going to offer. And if you don't think you can get it done at that point in time, your options are to 
try to negotiate again at the end of the season, which they did, or trade him because there was plenty of value and he had a really good first half. He did not have a good second half, but he had a good first half. And and then ultimately, because he's going to be a free agent, you could try to re-sign him after. You know, do the Yankees or all this Chapman route, if you will. Uh, the Rockies opted not to do that. They took him off the market, as as Billy Schmidt said. And then after the season, if you still think he's going to turn down that kind of money, it is a risk, but you can offer him the qualifying offer, which is uh, $18.4 million, even though that would be too high an annual salary. But if you think he's going to get three-plus years out on the market, he's probably going to turn it down. And if ultimately you can't come to a deal, which is what happened, you're going to at least get the qualifying offer. So I think if they had a mulligan on this, I think they would find a way to do it differently because now John is a Texas Ranger. And unfortunately, uh, the Rockies don't get any sort of compensation for uh, him going out the door. Now, they have a right to feel like we don't want to offer a fourth year, uh, you know, to a pitcher or feel like, you know, that's that's too many dollars. That's that's fine and and good to do that. But you have to be able to look into the crystal ball and say, OK, how can we get something back if John leaves? Because each player is an asset. We understand that. And you want to try to benefit if you have to move an asset or if an asset leaves, you want to try to benefit to some degree. Unfortunately, uh, the Rockies did not in this situation. So I think that's one uh, in particular uh, that you'd want to have, as I said, a mulligan on. Now, on the plus side, you ostensibly are going to have more money to spend because if you were willing to pay John, you know, 12, 13 uh, million dollars this year to throw the baseball for the Rockies. Uh, that's more money and uh, to to spend in free agency. And the Rockies again are on record as saying they want to add a couple of bats, which takes us to the rumors. Before uh, we tape this podcast over the last twenty four to forty eight hours, and we're taping on a Wednesday deadline day, by the way, to get a CBA done, which I'll get to in a moment. And uh, the rumors, you know, that the Rockies are heavily interested in Chris Bryant. Uh, that's great. That was that's great to hear. Um, I, I know there's interest in Kyle Schwarber and conversations uh, that are taking place. And we also know, obviously, that the representation for the Kyle Schwarbers, the Chris Bryants of the world, they're visiting with a number of teams. It is going to be very competitive to sign one or two of that next level of free agent. You know, we've seen Seeger go. Correa hasn't gone yet. Uh, obviously, we saw Scherzer go to the Mets. And, and the Mets are an interesting comp in that the Mets are a large market team and their owner, their new owner, Steve Cohen, uh, may be the wealthiest man in baseball. And he probably overpaid for Max Scherzer, even though Max Scherzer is a first ballot Hall of Famer, to, to pay him $43 million a year for three years, even the Dodgers obviously passed on that. So they overpaid to ensure that they got Scherzer. 
When it comes to pitching, you know the Rockies, the only way they could sign a free agent pitcher is by grossly overpaying. You know, see Mike Hampton many years ago. So take that off the board. But we've always felt like from a hitter standpoint, you know, guys would want to come to Coors Field. I think that still exists. But when you talk about players the ilk of Chris Bryant or Kyle Schwarber, they've made some money already. They're in their win- prime windows. They want to win also. And I think in the case of Chris Bryant, he's been in the big league seven years and six years he's been in the postseason. He won a world championship, as you all know, with the Cubs when he was, interestingly, a teammate of, of Kyle Schwarber. You know, I'm a big fan of, of Kyle Schwarber. Uh, you may, if you're the Rockies, because the perception is that they are not a contender uh, for, for a world championship right now, even though they still have a very solid rotation. So you may have to overpay to say, hey, Chris Bryant, you know what? We can win and we can win right now. We have a nice window with this rotation. And in, in a couple of years, we got some really good young talent uh, coming. So there's got to be a significant sales pitch and convincing because if you are being courted, say, by Toronto, it's pretty clear Toronto is a you know world championship contender with the roster that they've put together. If you are one of the the teams that is perennially uh, a World Series contender, like the Dodgers, like the Yankees, it goes without saying. You don't have to include that in your sales pitch. But if you're the Rockies, you do, and they have to win in this competitive marketplace when you're talking about a player at the level of a Chris Bryant or even at the level of a Kyle Schwarber. And then one would help recruit the other because they need more than one. You're losing, in all likelihood, Trevor Story. We know if you go back three years ago, the Rockies still had Nolan. They still had Trevor. And and Charlie Blackman was, was still in his late prime. And the Rockies did not overall have a great offense. Well, now we know where Nolan plays and and Trevor looks like he's out the door. So again, the Rockies need a couple of at bats, uh, excuse me, a couple of bats. They're on record, as I said, of saying that. And I love that they're involved with these guys. Now you got to win. And that's a tough part because it's not like you're trying to beat one other potential suitor. There's, there's going to be, a number of teams and you may money talks man look at the coaches that have changed in college football right money talks and and that's what is going to win the day ultimately and we'll see how it plays out one other part of this and this gets back to the CBA which will expire at midnight and as we tape this we don't know will are they close enough that the owners don't lock out Uh, the players, and they kind of continue talks. Let's hypothetically say that they do lock them out. I'm not panicking right now. I'm not worried about lost games. I think both sides will ultimately reach an agreement. But that agreement may not come to, you know, late January. Let's say hypothetically it does. If it is late January and there's only like a two-week window before spring training starts, there's going to be a free agent frenzy like we've never seen. 
And you may be in a situation where you can't really try to negotiate anymore. You got to put your best offer forward because guys want to know where they're going at that point because it's really late. And that puts a lot of pressure on front offices. That is one major impact if there is a a lockout and it is over a significant period of time. Now, if it's two weeks and it's mid-December and then free agency opens again, sure, there's a little bit more time to go back and forth. But from the Rockies' perspective, you have to win in all of these, you know, flirtations. And it's hard to win when there's a lot of competition out there. So we'll see how that all plays out. But that's, uh, you know, that's kind of my updated thoughts on uh, free agency and what, uh, you know, transpired with John Gray. In terms of replacing Gray, the only way the Rockies are going to be able to do that uh, with a bona fide starting pitcher is through a trade which means, you know, a Rymel Tapia and, you know, a couple of prospects uh, to get somebody that's done it before and and not somebody that you're hoping, you know, can come back because he's been injured or because of poor performance over a couple of years. The bounce back candidate um, is in a different grouping than, than somebody that is potentially available via trade and is still pitching at a fairly high level. Uh, Otherwise, in replacing John Gray, you're talking about young, unproven guys, and you know their names. Peter Lambert, uh, you know, who's coming back from Tommy John surgery. It was great to see him on the mound late last season, but you you don't know who he's going to be yet. He's still very, very young as a major league pitcher. Ryan Rolison, former first round pick, uh, left-hander, has never pitched above AAA. So again, you don't know uh, what you have and and how long it takes for uh, either one of those guys to become effective and consistently effective uh, at the big league level. So that's uh, that's where they are right now uh, from a pitching standpoint. My special guest today is Nico Medved, and I've gotten to know Nico over the last few years. Uh, he's really in his second tour at uh, Colorado State. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Before we get to Nico, I did want to mention a couple of things about college basketball. Did you catch the Duke-Gonzaga game uh, last weekend? That was a lot of fun. That was back and forth, high-level basketball. Duke ends up winning, and then Duke went out after after beating Gonzaga and becoming number one in the nation. They get upset in Columbus against uh, Ohio State. But I think anybody watching who knows anything about college basketball, you can pretty clearly see that if I were to peek into a crystal ball and say, guess what? Duke's national champs first weekend of April in the swan song for Mike Krzyzewski, you say, yep, they look talented enough. And the same thing for Mark Few's Gonzaga Bulldogs. They're, they're in the mix again. They were number one, obviously, prior to losing to Duke. They're really Really good. Chet Holmgren, uh, the freshman, the seven-footer from the Minneapolis area. Uh, There's speculation that he's going to come out this year and he's going to be the first pick in the draft. I don't know about that for me when I put my NBA cap on. He's long. He's, you know, fairly athletic for being that big. He affects shots. But, man, he weighs like 190 pounds. I mean, he's going to get beat up in the NBA. 
So there's a lot of projection there, but a nice young player. I thought the best freshman on the floor in the Duke and Zaga game was Paolo Banchero, the kid from Seattle. 6'10", shoots it well, physically you know, much stronger than Holmgren. Uh, in the early going this season, he's averaging about 18 and 8, shooting just under 54% from the floor. He had 21 against Gonzaga. Man, I like Banchero. It's impossible not to like him. But it's going to be a fun college basketball season. We're going to have Fran Fricilla, who's been with ESPN and doing huge games for them as an analyst, uh, the former coach. Um, we're going to have him on uh, next week. But we're going to talk to Nico Medved right now in Colorado State has an outstanding basketball team. In fact, Fran told me the other day, he thinks very easily they could be a Sweet 16 team. As we speak, they're off to an unbeaten start. They've already beaten two Sweet 16 teams from a year ago. And I think you're going to enjoy our conversation this week, our ideal home loans conversation with the head men's basketball coach at Colorado State University, Nico Medved. Well, Nico, you had to be really excited about this upcoming year with what you had returning off a very good team of a year ago. And I guess it's that balance of uh, expectations and knowing that there's hard work to be put in. How did you convey that initially as you got together uh, over the summer? I think, you know, it it was it's trying to, to play that 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 balance of confidence that I thought this was a group that should definitely have confidence in themselves and what we were doing based on on the success last year you know we were one of the first teams left out of the NCAA tournament and you know up until that last you know game against Nevada you know we were last second shot away from you know winning the first the Mountain West time for the Mountain West championship for the right in the regular season for the first time in school history since we've been in the Mountain West and so I think there was confidence there. And then we went to the, the NIT semifinals. But then I think it's, it's that hunger. And ultimately, yeah, that was great. But we finished short of our goals, right? We, we didn't win the league. It's a very difficult thing to be sitting in there on Selection Sunday and see your name, you know, as one of the first, you know, schools left out of the tournament. And so I think that that obviously provided a ton of motivation for these guys to understand that we, we haven't gotten there. We need to keep working. We need to get better. And, with the group of guys that we have and the character that we have, I think having both of those things, the confidence and, and still that hunger of knowing we, we got more work to do has really played in well, you know, into the off season and, and so far into the early season. When you're one of those teams, those bubble type teams, and, you know, I followed it closely and for weeks on end, you know, Colorado state first four in Colorado state first four out, you know, um, when you're in the middle of it, and then you reflect back to you say, you know, had we done this, we would have been in. Do you allow yourself to go there? I think you, I think you, listen, it's, it's human nature. You have to in the sense of, you know, we don't, we didn't sit there every day and talk to our players about where we were or where we weren't. We knew we just had to keep playing better and try to win the next game. But players know they all have social media. You know what I mean? They're all looking at the, the brackets and, I mean, I think they have an idea of where they stand, but I, I think definitely, Drew, as you take stock, you know, after the season's over, you look back and say, hey, what did we do well? How could we have grown? You know, what were some things that we needed to do better to push us over the hump? The margins are small. The margins are so small, the winning and losing. And, you know, we were able to win a lot of close games, but 
you know, reflecting on a couple of those games that didn't go our way, um, some of the opportunities we didn't take advantage of, um, I think you, you have to reflect back and look back, hey, had we done this better? How do we have to grow? So next season, if we're in that same spot, we can get over the hump. So of course you have to. I think that's human nature. I want to take you back before we keep talking about this team, which is really exciting to watch. Um, when you were, went to college, you go to the University of Minnesota. I assume, you know, you played high school basketball. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. You, you were a student manager of sorts at at, uh, at University of Minnesota. Was coaching always, you know, in the playbook? Yeah, it, it's, it's a really weird thing for me. Um, when I got into high school, it became very clear to me right away that I, I wanted to coach. I, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And, and really, I, I thought for me, if I could ever just be the, you know, a head high school coach in, in, in my local community, wherever I was, uh, that would be the greatest job in the, in the world. Is I just, I love the idea of coaching and teaching and being in the gym and the relationships that you had and um, just the influence I thought you could have on people and, and in your community. And, and then it's just, you know, from there, it just kind of morphs into, gosh, I fell in love with, like everybody, with college basketball. And, you know, I, I, at best, I was a small college-level player, but I wanted to be involved at the highest level. And I'm like, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a shot at it. And so, But for me, that's always what I wanted to do. And I can't tell you why that is, but it was just something that I knew uh, that was in my blood and I wanted. And it's kind of crazy that I'm sitting here today. And, and you have to get opportunities. I know you coached at McAllister, which is a great academic school. It's a D3 school, um, you know, in, in the Minneapolis area. What enabled you to take from that level and jump to the to ultimately the major college level? I think, you know, there's two things. I mean, one, when I was the undergrad, you know, at Minnesota, I think I was developing a network in Division One, right, with the coaches there uh, um, on staff. I had an opportunity. I would work the Nike All-American camps in the summer, um, and I really developed a network at the Division One level. And then when I went to McAllister College, I think what that allowed me to do is it's it's all hands on deck. When you're at Division Three, if you had a coach, recruit, schedule, game plan, I mean, you, you know, clean the floors, you know, you name it, you you got to do a little bit of everything. And it's such a great way to learn uh, um, how to do it all, you know. And it's one thing to to observe and to be involved. It's a whole other thing when when you have to have the responsibility to to do that. And I thought those things really were helpful to me. I think, man, having the opportunity to coach at a small college like that is is invaluable. Um, and then, so I think it was really those two things, Drew. And then obviously when I got an opportunity to go to Furman, one of the assistants, Larry Davis, that I had worked with out in Minnesota, got a head Division One job. And because of that network and my experience, I was able to move into Division One. But I, I think both of those things really helped me. And getting that first break as a full-time assistant in Division One is so hard, but that was the critical one for me. I'm going to ask you this, and and I know because I know you a little bit. I I know you have great humility, so I'm asking you this not to embarrass you. But what is it that you feel that you do really well that has enabled you to have success, really wherever you you've been? You turned Furman around. I know you're only at, at Drake briefly, but you had a nice little run there, and and obviously you're you're already having great success in Fort Collins. Hey, and I've not tried to dodge your question. I, I, right. I, I wish I, I wish I had like 
to say, hey, this is the, the magic bullet. I, I think, you know, for me, I've always tried to be genuine. Um, I've always tried to, you know, believe in myself and the process. I think it's about people. And I think that, you know, you, you can't start to have the team or organization uh, program that you want until you get the right people on the, on the bus. And, 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 and I think that everybody says that, but I think being intentional about doing those things and people who, who really want to grow, you know, Dick, Dick Bennett, who's one of my mentors, you know, he, he, he told me when I got my first head coaching job, he said, Nico, every time I took over a program, and I knew that, you know, we had to rebuild it. He goes, the first thing I knew is I had to recruit a group of guys that I could lose with first. And and you're kind of like, what are you talking about? But as you get into it and you get into coaching and you know you're going to take some losses, you're going to go through adversity, if you have a group of people that's going to keep fighting, that will, through the losses, keep believing, keep working, keep, you know, not bailing, um, it eventually is going to turn. But I think you can't do that until you get the right people. And so I think quickly being able to identify that and who's going to buy into your vision, you know, in the recruiting process, who you hire, um, all those things. And then I think it's just having a strong belief in how you do it, you know. And, and it doesn't mean my way is better than somebody else's, but I know it works for me. It's something that I believe in. And I think the people in our organization know that I believe in it. And so that permeates down and you get people that do that. I think good things start to happen. And I know that's really general. I don't have anything specific, but I think it's, I think it starts there. Yeah, I I would listen. I think if you're building a company, uh, that's, that's a good place to start with uh, staples of what you just said. I'm going to ask you a related question. I was talking to Fran uh, Frischilla about this recently and we use this all the time. You hear this all the time on broadcasts. I'm guilty of it. This guy's a great coach. That guy's a great coach. And maybe we're, we're, we throw that around in too cavalier a fashion. You are a head basketball coach at the major college level. When you look around, whether it be at mentors like Dick Bennett or some of your brethren right now, when you say to yourself, that guy's a great coach, what does that mean in your mind? I think it, it's, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable how you look at a great coach and you just see within their teams and their programs, there's just a tremendous amount of belief from the top down in what they do. And there's a tremendous amount of buy-in, um, belief, the way that those guys play, the spirit that they have. You just know it when you see it. You play against teams, they're, they're always prepared. Uh, they never get too up. They never get too down. But, but I think even bigger than that, it's just, it's just what I said. It's just you, you can just feel it when the, the people in their teams and their programs just have an unbelievable, unwavering belief in what's going on there every day. And then it permeates and you, you see the former players talking about, you see these people taking a, a tremendous amount of pride in what they're doing. And I, I, I always feel like I, you know, people say, well, what, you know, if, if the kid comes in and what would, what would that, if when a kid leaves your program, how do you want him to feel? I, hey, listen, I, hopefully we've won a lot of games. Hopefully I have a chance to play in the NCAA tournament, uh, have a chance to win a championship. But more than anything, I, I want those kids to feel like their experience in our program changed their life. And, and what is, I think that's different for everybody, 
But I think the great coaches and the great programs, that's what they're able to do. And people who graduate and they leave these places, they look back and they just, they love talking about being a part of that program. They take a tremendous amount of pride in that. So there's something else going on at those places that even transcends just the wins and losses. And to me, that's a great coach. And and within that, more than ever before, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, coaches recruit and players recruit other players now because of social media, because you can have a wide reach, whether it be with AU or camps or just, again, social media. Kids recruit kids now and help you in that regard with your program, I would think. Yeah, without question. I think they're your players are your best recruiters and the people around your program. You know, we're all going to have our, our, our spiels and our selling points and our style of play and what we do and the success that we're having and, you know, how you fit in here. But ultimately, you know, when you're not around and, and that young man or his parents and they start asking around to your players and maybe players that have played for you before um, that are maybe out doing something else and they say, hey, what's it? What's it like to play for those guys? What's it like to to play for for Coach Medved? You know, those are the conversations, in my opinion, that matter the most. You know, that that kind of view, that unbiased view, and what are they going to say about you? It doesn't mean everything's, you know, going to be perfect all the time. But, but again, I I feel like if you're genuine – that that word goes around. Hey, I, I had a great experience there. Hey, they're they're, they're going to work hard for you. They're going to help you get better. Um, I loved my experience there. The coaches were awesome. They treated me well, uh, um, no matter what. If we were winning and losing, you know, they treated me like a uh, um, like a like a great human being. And so I do. I think that players and and uh, parents and people that have played for you before, I think they can be your greatest advocates. You know, Nico, you'll appreciate this um, because this next reference is to a kid from Minneapolis who had a great, not a good, but a great college career, and that's McKinley Wright, who you, who you knew. And and McKinley, after his freshman year, I remember saying to Tad Boyle, I said, he's the perfect college basketball player because he's an outstanding player but you don't have to worry about him going early to the NBA because it's going to be it's going to be close as to and, and he's up and down G League type of kid. And the reason I make that reference now is, in my mind, from afar, you have two kids that are great college players, and in all likelihood, um, I, I know you have your fingers crossed, they play for four years, and that's Isaiah Stevens and a Minneapolis kid in David Roddy. Is that is that a fair assessment? I, I, I understand that, and we're coming from, I mean, I think obviously both of those guys, you know, have aspirations of playing at the highest level, and how that works out for them, you know, we'll see. And obviously, I would say, I would have my fingers crossed for those guys. Like, I, if, if any one of our guys was, you know, at a place where they could get drafted early, that's the best thing ever. I'd be, I'd be the happiest guy in the world for them because I think, you know, they can get uh, um, for them everything that they've given to our program. Get get that out of our pro. I think out of our program, that'd be awesome. But I, but I, I agree. I mean, those are guys that you know maybe in that position where they've got to stay four years to have a great career, and they're both going to play professional basketball. What level that is at, I think that's to be determined. But I think that analogy is 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 real. And I think the other parallel you can make between McKinley and these two guys is the level of competitors that they are in human being. I mean, McKinley was an elite competitor, right? He just had an intolerance 
for anything that got in the way of winning, you know. And I think Isaiah Stevens has that. David Roddy has that. It's just um, even though they're great players, they're all about the team. They're all about the program. When your best players are your best people, that what makes my job so easy. And, and so I think those are also parallels between those guys. We'll have more with head Colorado State men's basketball coach Nico Medved in a moment. But uh, first this for uh, my friends at Ideal Home Loans. You've heard me talk about Ideal Home Loans on this podcast for more than two years. You've heard me talk about them on television for a number of years because they're really, really good at what they do. And that's saving you money. Uh, when you're purchasing a new home, you call Ideal Home Loans. When you're refinancing, you call Ideal Home Loans. If you're consolidating debt, you'd be smart to call Ideal Home Loans. Their phone number is 303-867-7000. Obviously, you can find them online as well. Brett Ivinson's team, more than 20 years in the business, and they have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. They don't hand those things out. They've earned it, and they keep earning it. And that's why they have so many repeat customers like myself and like many of my friends. 303-867-7000, Ideal Home Loans. Divorce is not fun. Difficult time, emotional time, uncertain time. Been there. You need guidance. You need counsel. You need accurate information and great professionalism and understanding. And you'll find it without question at one of the top family law firms in the region in Cox, Baker and Page. That's Cox, Baker and Page. They've been recognized in a number of publications for their excellent work in the area of family law. They're compassionate and thorough in guiding you through a tumultuous period. Their work has been routinely recognized for its excellence. U.S. News and World Report, for instance, consistently award Laura Page and Mary Cox best lawyer distinctions. If you or someone you know is looking for counsel, reach them at coxbakerandpage.com. That's coxbakerandpage.com. Mention you heard it from me and receive a discount on your initial consultation. Now back to more with Nico Medved from Colorado State. When you first started recruiting David Roddy, and I was around, and, and I remember, you know, you saying that you really feel like you got a special one and the, and he's you know he I know he was a terrific high school quarterback as well is he even better than you thought he was going to be that's a great question I, I maybe I mean I, I thought he had a chance to be a to be a terrific player but I, I I think what maybe surprised me is I knew he had a really good skill level I think he's probably his skill levels even progressed maybe faster than I anticipated. Um, and I, I, I just, I knew he was a difficult matchup. I maybe didn't realize how difficult of a matchup, you know, he was. Um, and again, you, you realize that he's very light on his feet and athletic for his size, but maybe didn't realize how athletic. Um, and is he's really, one thing that's really hard when you're a three-sport athlete like he is, Drew, you know, he he's, he doesn't spend in high school year-round improving his skill level in basketball. So I think what happens is right after his first offseason, um, obviously there was COVID, um, but as he keeps building and growing and spending the offseason getting in shape, improving his ball handling, footwork, shooting, now I think what people are seeing is, Here's this guy that's dedicated to basketball, and he's got all this talent, and he's and he's taking off. And 
it's interesting. A lot of the best players that I've coached, they've been multi-sport athletes. And it's, it's kind of one of the reasons they take off is they're competitors. They love to play. But then once they finally turn their attention to just playing one sport in college, boy, they really blossom. And I think that's what, what, what's really happening with him. Yeah, and, uh, you know, as as we speak today, he's shooting 57% from the floor and, and 44% from three that's that's a night uh, a matchup nightmare because we you, you know how physical he is if, if he gets the ball on the block yeah he, he he's really worked hard at his perimeter shooting you know he has the last couple of years and he just stayed with it and you know i think ollie for oakland on my staff has done a terrific job you know with that too of helping him with his routine and being intentional and i think that work has really paid off for him with the confidence he has in his perimeter shot and then, you know, like, like I said, I think the other thing that's happening for him is he's an older player now. He's been through it. He's been through being at the top of the scouting reports. And I think he's just handling both adversity and success better. I think those are the two most difficult things to handle, adversity and success. And not just from game to game, but sometimes within a game, you know, you pick up two, two quick fouls. Uh, something's not going your way. Can you regroup mentally and find a way to stay with it? And, You've seen that happen already this year where he hasn't all of a sudden down the stretch, you know, he's turned it on for us. Um, he'll have a great game. He can come back, have another great game, you know, the next game. And so I think it's that skill level, but it's also that mental maturity of him understanding who he is, not getting too up, not getting too down, staying present in the moment. I mean, that's where we're really seeing him grow. And it's been, it's been fun to watch. You know, it makes me look like a better coach. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Listen, one of my favorite lines is I said this on a recent podcast, one of my old partners in college football, Dave Lapham, he does the Bengals on radio, played in the NFL for a long time. He said, you can X and O all you want, but if their X's are bigger, stronger, faster than your O's, it doesn't matter. So it's pretty it's pretty nice when you can uh, you know put Roddy in the lineup and Isaiah Stevens in the lineup to begin. Uh, you, you feel like you feel like a better coach, I'm sure when you write their names down. How about Stevens? How good is he? I, he is, he's special, Drew. I, and, and I think his mental makeup is something that people don't get to see every day. He's got an unbelievable maturity about him. He's an unbelievable competitor. He's unbelievably coachable. He's just an unbelievable human being all the way around. And, and, um, you could see that right away. He just has that it factor right when he walks out on the court. And you're seeing him get better. I, I don't have the stats in front of me right now, Drew, but I think at one point, like in the Paradise Jam, he had like 26 assists and two turnovers. I mean, as Creighton, he had 17 assists, no turnovers. Uh, um, it, it, it's unbelievable. And, and what, what I love about him is he knew, we talked about his growth coming into this year, and I think one of the biggest things he had to do was improved taking care of the ball. You know, he's always been able to get others involved, but I think he was too careless with the ball at times, got too sped up. And a lot of times, you know, you tell players that, but do they really, you know, find a way to intentionally get better? And it's just been off the charts for him so far. His decision-making, his pace, uh, um, the way he's getting others involved, and the way he's been able to help us just take over games at the end, you know. And so he just – he's got it all. Um he knows who he is. He's unbelievably humble, um, and so yeah, he's just a he's just a great player. And I, I can't 
I'm lucky he's on our team because I, I wouldn't trade a, a, a him for anybody at the point guard spot. Yeah, that's interesting. But, you know, he's almost 5-1 to one assist to turnover ratio, which uh, with the ball in his hands as much as it is, that is uh, – that that's incredible right there. Who's who's the most improved? I mean, I've I've watched you guys a lot. Obviously, John Tanjay's had had some great uh, uh, minutes this year. Deshaun Thomas seems like he's he's come around, and you have a new kid who was a great player at the D two level in in Chandler Jacobs. Um, who, who's most improved? And talk about the that threesome a little bit. I, you know, I, I'm going to be, if I, I try to say, gosh, who's the most improved? We got a, a lot of guys that have, I, I think, you know, the other thing, you know, when you look at our program, one of the things we, we try to, we want to take a lot of pride in is player development, you know, on and off the court. And we always think we recruit the right guys that really want to work and get better, that they're going to get better. And we're going to help them intentionally get better. And we got a lot of guys who want to do the work. And so I think that's what fans are seeing. I mean, Guy that stands out. I mean, John Tanjay has just been phenomenal. I mean, he, he, uh, um, you know, a guy who really had a great role for us off the bench. He, he, he's, he's coming off the bench. We actually started him in the first game and, you know, he has, he has 31. And what kind of dumb coach, like, he has 31 and I start him and I put him back on the bench. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but, you know, he, he, uh, he buys into that role. He had a, he had, you know, he had 20 the other night, really helped carry us offensively, um, against UNC. I think his improvement has been just tremendous and his confidence and his ability for the game to slow down. He's playing really good defensively for us. And Deshaun Thomas is the same way. I mean, he's gotten so much stronger. He's always been a guy who can shoot the three, but he's shooting it at a, at even a higher level now. And he's passing well. He's finishing. Um, his defense is improving. Um, and a guy like Chandler Jacobs, I think he had a great game against UNC. You know, it's difficult. He's the one graduate transfer, Drew, that we've recruited. And that was a difficult thing for us with all these guys coming back. And we knew that chemistry was a huge part of our team. But he's such a great young man, and he really wanted to be part of a good team. And he knew his role was going to be different um, than what it was at, 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 his, at Dallas Baptist. But I think it takes time. You know, when you're coming in, you're trying to play a completely different role. How do you fit in? Where can you make an impact? And we're seven games into it. And hopefully, like you saw on Saturday, he's really starting to figure that out. And um, as he does, I think his impact is going to get bigger and bigger as the year goes on. Is this the most depth you've had with a, with a college team that you've been the head coach of? Yeah, without, without question. You know, I, I had a team at Furman. Uh, that that was a little bit similar that way, but yes, I mean this is the most depth that I've been a part of, and you know we got freshmen like Jalen Lake, and who's coming in just he's just been ahead of schedule as a freshman. He's just been tremendous. We got a guy like James Morris who started for us last year, um, that's coming off the bench and hasn't played as many minutes, not because he's not playing as well. It's just you know the way things have worked. And Isaiah Rivera has been terrific, and. Yeah, I think our, our depth um, has really been a strength of ours, and it's something that we're really continuing to get our guys to buy into. It's not easy to play 10 guys. You know, a lot of people's minutes are going to be cut, even from what they were last year. But, you know, what, what we're preaching is that means that we win and, um, you know, we reach our goals as a team and get to where we want to go. Um, I think playing your 
seven less minutes a game, but winning at a high level, I, I, I think you're not going to care much when you look back on it. Yeah. You know, one of the things I love, and, and I think so many people do about college basketball, particularly March Madness, is we all like uh, an underdog, a Cinderella, if you will. And, and basketball, just by the very nature, there's five guys on the floor at one time. Teams that are outside of the Power Five truly can compete at the highest level. We've seen Butler in a couple of championship games. Gonzaga, year in and year out, is a national title contender. Where, honestly, in football, it's really difficult, you know, if you are not among the Power Five to to play with those guys consistently. Does that also help you in recruiting? Whereas I've heard football coaches, you know, admonish assistant saying don't recruit that guy we're not going to get him do you feel like hey if we can get in the room we can get a guy that may have power five and high level power five opportunities because basketball is different i think there's some truth to that drew i mean i think that you know uh, you know hey like every sport you know guys have a tendency to be intrigued by the highest level but i think at the same point in time you know when you look at, like you said, if, if you can look at a program in our league right now, San Diego State has that a little bit. They've had long-term success, right, over a period of years. And as they keep winning and they have great fan support, people look at them and they're able to beat a lot of those, you know, upper-level Pac-12 schools for people because, because of their track record of success. And I feel like that's the vision that we have here. If players come here – and they have success individually. They grow and develop. They have a great experience in our program. The team wins at a high level. Um, the community supporting it. I think that's an easy sell to recruits. Yeah, you might be recruited by this person, that person, but let's look at the track record here. You can come here. You can win. You can get everything you want out of your experience in college basketball right here at Colorado State. And not everybody's going to buy into that, Drew, but I tell you what, what I found is the ones who do, it's kind of like the law of it. It's, it's, it is. It's the law of attraction. The ones who do and come to your programs because you sold them on that and they really want to be there, those are the ones that work out anyway. You know, and, and I don't, we don't spend a ton of time worrying about the guys or even thinking about the guys that we don't get. We just kind of focus on the ones that we do, you know, and we, we sell that and we've been able to recruit talented players and guys that really want to do that. And my hope is as we continue to grow and build the program here, what you just, you know, spoke about will, will come to fruition and we're going to continue to recruit talented guys and guys will see that, hey, that's, that's a great place to go play and I can get everything I, everything I want, you know, playing at Colorado State. You know, scheduling is so important. And as we tape this, you have, uh, you know, an interesting week and a half coming up. I mean, it begins Saturday. I, I don't want to, I shouldn't say it begins Saturday. You have a ball game Wednesday. I know you're not overlooking that one. But Saturday from a college basketball, um, you know, purist and, and from a sexy standpoint, St. Mary's comes to Moby. And, and then you're playing, you know, you're going to play a couple SEC schools. So, uh, that has to be important as well when you are, uh, and the Mountain West has always been well-respected, but going back to what we were just discussing with scheduling, and especially when you were maybe the first team out last year, you want to make sure that schedule has some uh, sex appeal to it. Yeah, I mean, without question. I think it's, you know, we we didn't want to lay up this year. We wanted to make sure that at the end of the season, if we look back on it and it didn't go the way that we wanted, it wasn't going to be because we didn't put ourselves out there. Um, and so we look for 
all the opportunities that we could to schedule at a high level. And um, I think we've done that. I think our schedule is going to put us in position to be able to do that. And, you know, you gotta, you're going to have to step up and win some of them, you know. And we were able to win the Paradise Jam. Um, you know, we beat a, a team like, like Creighton. Um, who I think at the end of the year is going to end up being a, being a really good win for us. And I think some of these other teams too. I mean, I, I think, you know, Northeastern has a chance to win their league. Uh, heck, UNC might have a chance to win their league, you know? Um, and I think at the end of the year, I think when it all, you know, boils down, you know, what do those wins look like? But, but you're right. I mean, when we have an opportunity to play these quad one, quad two games, we have to try to take those opportunities and hopefully have some success. And then, the other buy-in to that, Drew, is what the rest of your league does. You know, we need other teams in our league to do the same thing, to seek out as many quality opponents as they can and have success in some of those games. So when we get into league play, kind of like last year, although the season was a little different because of COVID, you know, we had quad one, quad two opportunities in our league, you know, with Utah State, San Diego State, Boise State, and us. And it was us winning, beating all those teams that, you know, gave us an opportunity uh, to be in the conversation. And that's what we need this year. So far, has it been perfect? No. But the Mountain West has done pretty well um, in the non-conference. And hopefully that trend continues here before we start league play. Yeah, and the Mountain West, as you know, has uh, – because you you were in it before leaving and, and then coming back to Fort Collins. The Mountain West historically has been a really good conference. I remember one year, I believe they were the second-rated conference in all of college basketball. Um, going back yeah. about eight, nine years and had four or five teams uh, in the tournament. You know, real quick, when it, one of the things, and I can say this as somebody that's been in Colorado 36 years, and, and you know I have great respect for, for you, and I have great respect for Tad Boyle, and, and I know you guys respect each other a great deal. There was a chance, naturally, that you could have played them in the finals down in the U.S. Virgin Islands, and I think that would have been uh, really cool. Unfortunately, you two will not play – um this year but that's a fun rivalry isn't it yeah i you know and i'll I'll say this i mean i i you know i was disappointed you know we we didn't get to play last year because of covid you know this year um you know circumstances that cu had they wanted to push back the the game another year i was disappointed i I really hoping we could have gone down to boulder and played this year but I, i i get it um the one thing I do, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Tad as a coach and a person. And I think Tad, I think he's one of those rare coaches that, that, that you love that says, you know what, I think it's important too that CSU and CU play. And I think, I think, you know, for us, sometimes I get the money and the TV and all that, but sometimes we also forget that the fans are the ones who ultimately drive that. And, and I think for, you know, we want our fans to, to be college basketball fans, to support it. I think it's great for the state when we play each other, especially when both programs are good. Uh, yeah. You know, like they've been good, we're good. Um, I think that's great. And so I think we're committed to, to next year, you know, starting the series back up again. We'll go to Boulder next year, and then the plan is, you know, they would come back the year after that. And I really hope that game continues to happen because I think it's it's – it's just a win-win for everybody. And you know what? If both, if both teams are good and one team loses to the other, it's not the end of the season. It's a good lot. You know what I mean? It's, it's a great game and one team loses. It's fine. And, uh, um, you move on, but it's great for the fans and it's a great opportunity for both programs. Yeah. Hey, Nico, man, I, uh, from afar, I'm, I'm really pleased for you and for your program. 
Uh, and you and listen from an entertainment standpoint, it's it, they're a great bunch to watch. And other than the aforementioned uh, transfer from Dallas Baptist Chandler Jacobs, you get the whole group back. If uh, if I'm accurate in that, yeah, you know that's the that's the the theory here. And obviously, you know we'll we'll cross that bridge after the season. But it's just it's been. There's such a great group of guys to coach, and they've been a fun group to grow with. And it's been fun to watch these guys, all the hard work that they put in, you know, seeing some of it start to come to fruition. And it's been fun to have the fans back, and the fan energy has been awesome in Moby. And I'm excited to get back out there again tomorrow night and to feel that um, because that that's the vision that we had, and we're starting to feel it. And, you know, these guys are the ones who put in the work. And so hopefully we know it's, it's a difficult road ahead and you got to put one foot in front of the other. College basketball is difficult, but um, we feel like we can compete and got to keep keep getting better. Well, I wish you nothing but success moving forward. I thank you greatly for the time and uh, I'll be up to see you soon. Hey, Drew, appreciate you. Yeah, you, you as well, Nico. Take care, man. I always draw comparisons between Nico and Tad Boyle because both do it the right way, truly, and both are really good people. It's the old line, man, if I had a son um, who was a major college basketball talent and Tad Boyle called or Nico Medved called, I am all in on having them play for either one of those guys. And they win, and they win the right way, and uh, it's great to see. I know we struggled in football with the with the programs outside of Troy Calhoun down at the Air Force Academy in state for a while, but when it comes to hoops, Tad's had it going the last dozen years, and and uh, you know he just keeps climbing that ladder. And Nico Medved has it going up in Fort Collins. It's great to see. All right, quick transition before we get out of here to football. I'm going nuts, man. I'm going nuts. Watching the number of flags fly each week in college football and the NFL. And it's typically on pass interference calls or really ticky-tack holding calls. It, it's killing the game. It's, it's killing the enjoyment at times. I still love football. But at times, you watch and you're like, oh, there's a flag. We know more NFL referees visually than we do a lot of football players, a lot of the stars. You might not recognize because of the mask. You, you haven't seen them enough, right? But you know all the referees in the league. I don't want to know the referees. I think when... The rules committee gets together in the offseason. There has to be a, a tidal wave change in how the game is officiated, especially when it comes to pass interference uh, and holding. And that is, unless, here's the rule, unless you see an egregious, in capital letters, infraction, keep the flag in your pocket. All the rules, when it comes to P.I., all the rules favor the offense to begin with. So these poor cornerbacks, they're having a backpedal and turn and run with these great wideouts, and there's a little bit of contact, there's a little bit of hand fighting. Let it go. 
You can't just keep throwing the flag and giving the team on a on a nine route forty yard gain because there was some contact. Nobody wants to see that. Nobody enjoys listening to the referee turn his microphone on and say, we have interference on number 24 of the defense, spot foul, first down. And boom, they march down the field 42 yards. They got to change that. They really do. I saw more ticky-tack holding calls also over the weekend. Stop. The old line goes, you call holding on every play. It's hard to to block, you know, some of these edge guys. If it wasn't a full-on takedown or a, a tackle or a mugging, don't call it. We want to see fluidity. We want to see action. Not, oh, that was a pretty good play, but it's coming back. It won't be the last time I get on that soapbox, trust me. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, tell your friends, as always, make sure you catch the DNVR podcast uh, each week. We're going to have Fran Fricilla next week, and we'll continue to monitor what's going on in the world of Major League Baseball. Y'all have a great week. Take care. Take care.